Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. This morning, um, we have with us uh, Brother Bryant Martin. He's from State College and um, part of a congregation there called Followers of Jesus. And he's planning to be sharing with us this morning. So if everybody would just uh, turn off their um, um, microphones, that would be helpful. Just mute yourself. And then um, we'll give the time to you, Brother Bryant. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you. Good to be with you this morning. May uh, God bless each one of you. Um, yeah, so as you noticed there on the WhatsApp group, <clears throat> um, I'm planning to talk about um, the answer for a world today. What I, what I believe is the answer for a world, and that is kingdom communities or churches, whatever you want to call that, uh, local congregations, faithful practice, um, people that are, that are embracing the kingdom of God, that are displaying the kingdom of God, and that are proclaiming the kingdom of God. I had the privilege of being down um, at Shippensburg Fellowship uh, last Sunday um, with Patrick Matthews, with Patrick Matthews uh, Church, and uh, sharing with them. They'd asked me to come and preach down there, and I shared this, this message this past Sunday, so maybe that's why he's not on this morning. Uh, and... Um, so, and then uh, I also had had given this message throughout our congregation here a while back, and it's something that's been that's really on my heart. Um, it's something that that I, I care deeply about, and it's something that I sure have not in any way arrived uh, at this incredible call to be part of local bodies of believers that are embracing, that are displaying, and that are proclaiming the kingdom of God. But I believe with all confidence that is the answer for our world. And I believe that our King, that King Jesus believes that as well. And so I want to take you through this message. I don't think I'm going to make it the whole way through. Um, and so I'm going to open it up towards the end for sure uh, for, for your input, for your, um, for your thoughts, for what you have learned. One of our goals is to see this, this call be a, a place of fellowship and connection and synergistically working together uh, so we can, you know, propel each other on or provoke each other uh, to love and, and to good works. So we live in crazy times. We live in a time that I believe calls for us to put our all into the kingdom of God. Globally, there's incredible brokenness. I was just reading an article here a minute ago off of the Associate Press talking about uh, serious flooding um, and how the UN is raising the alarm that they need hundreds of millions of dollars to somehow um, just uh, counter the reality of famine in many, in many, many countries. And this is what it says. Um, COVID-19 has restricted trade and travel Food prices rose, post-war unrest remains deadly, gunmen recently um, fire on, on people. The convergence of conflict, macroeconomic crisis, um, recurrent flooding, 
as well as the direct impact of COVID-19 has created the perfect storm. And it goes and talk about how uh, famine is truly a real and dangerous possibility. Another article I read earlier this week um, said that um, in 2021, probably 150 million people or more will, will drop into the critical poverty line or below or into the critical poverty um, demographic, which is like living under $2 a day. So in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of progress in the right direction. But sadly, due to just all the stuff that's going on in the world, many people are falling back into that critical poverty. So lots of brokenness. Of course, that we're, just, we're just focusing on physical here. We know that spiritual realities are, are just as great, uh, if, not, if not greater. And of course, we can talk about national, nationally, all the brokenness that we have around us, the, the rhetoric uh, due, to, due to politics and the polarization of that. Uh, and then sadly, bringing that within the Christian church, we have people who've taken up sides and have, had a lot, have allowed earthly kingdoms to divide us. We live in broken times. A recent uh, Washington Post article said that um, the title was this, faith groups are vital for the safety net of society, but they are rapidly shrinking. So the reality is that many people within our, our own country, this quote, Christian country of the West, are no longer Christian, have no interest in Christianity, but rather um, in the past have, have really become materialistic, have denied God. And then today in the millennial generation and younger, younger generations, we see people who actually are, are kind of leaning back into spirituality and becoming spiritual again, but it's not in the right, it's not the right kind of spirituality. It's a pagan, really a pagan spirituality. Just for example, the other day I was talking with my neighbor lady here and the other neighbor got home and, um, and she, and he yelled out, Hey, watch it. She's a witch and she's going to cast a spell on you. And, and he was just joking. These two neighbors get back and forth there. They're always at, at each other's necks, at each other's necks in, in fun ways. But it was just a reality that people are talking like that. Like people realize that there is these other spiritual realms and many people are dabbling in that. So what? What is the answer for us today? And I want to, I want to suggest this morning that it is our King, Jesus Christ, and it's the message of his kingdom and the reality of his kingdom on earth. I was so touched um, with uh, just earlier this week, reading the verses from Jesus out of John 4, 13 through 14, where it's this beautiful picture of Jesus at, this, at the well in Samaria. And along comes this lady, this sinful lady, and he breaks so many boundaries there. He, he talks to her, he talks to a woman, he talks to a Samaritan, and he engages with her in such, with such dignity and love. And he says this, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the living water. And there's a song that's one of my 
favorite songs called Oh Healing River. And Wendell sent this to me earlier this week, actually, as he knew that I was preparing for this message that I, was gonna, that I preached on Sunday. He sent me this song saying, hey, listen to the song, may it inspire you. And it, it brought me to tears because it goes like this. Oh, healing river, send down your water. Send down your water upon this thirsty, upon this land. Oh, healing river, send down your water and wash the blood from off the sand. This land is parching. This land is thirsty. No seed is growing on the barren ground. Oh, healing river, send your water down. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can come to the source of life, that we can come and cry out to the one who came to this earth and walked among us and brought this beautiful message, preaching the kingdom of God. And so beautifully, interacted with the loss and they're hurting around him. And, and he was kind to them. And he welcomed them. He even took the children under his lap and said, suffer little ones to come unto me and forbid them not. And Father, we also see the words, the pointed words that he, that he sent, that he engaged the religious of his day with. And Father, I just ask, Lord, that that you would break into our hard hearts. Because, Father, we know that change begins with us, that you came to engage our worst enemy, and that is ourselves, and that is our, the wickedness of our heart. And you wanted to take, you wanted to take um, your words that were on tables of stone and plant them on the fleshy tables of our heart. And, Father, we, we ask, Lord, that you would do that again this morning, that you would make us into your image, that change would begin with us, Lord. And so, Father, we just ask that you would guide and direct this message. Father, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I just want to do a, a, a quick overview um, of, of God's work in the world. I know that I'm talking to many people here who, who really have a, a solid understanding uh, of, of the kingdom of God, a solid understanding of God's work in the world. But my... But as, as we look at history, as we look at how God created the world and, and created this beautiful garden, this Garden of Eden, and he put two people there, Adam and Eve, and they were to tend and keep that garden and exercise dominion over that. And they were also to, to, um, to reproduce, to make more of these people who were made in God's image. And we know that the sad story of how they gave in to the imposter, how they gave in to Satan and to his message and believed it. And, and then the sad reality of them being kicked out of the garden. And then as we look on up through Genesis, we see God then calling a man. His name was Abraham, calling him to um, out, of, out of his land where he was from to a new place and telling him that I'm going to bless you. But your work, your job is to be a blessing to other, to other nations. And so many times, I think um, we, we sometimes look at that passage as saying God may be calling a people for salvation. But really, as we look at Genesis 12 there, we see that God is calling a people for service. 
God wanted people to again show him and his work and his ways to the world. And he chose this amazing man, Abraham, to do that. And then, of course, as we come up through, we know that the whole story of, of them going to Egypt and then back to the, to the desert, to the promised land and the many, many failures there. But we see through that story that God is calling a community or even a congregation, as it says, um, numerous times throughout, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Exodus 16.10, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community and con- or congregation, they looked towards the desert and the glory of the Lord was appearing in the cloud. On up through in Exodus, Exodus 19, verse 6, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak to the people of Israel. Earlier this week, earlier this week, my family for family devotions, um, we were reading here in, in 1 Kings 11. And here, uh, in, I'm sorry, 1 Kings actually 10. And here in this passage, the Queen of Sheba has come to, to find out about this incredible kingdom, this incredible nation. And she comes and she spends time with Solomon and fires all kinds of hard questions at him. And he answers them way beyond what he could imagine. This is what she says. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about, about your words and your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw them with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told half. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceeds the reports I heard. How happy are your men? How happy are the servants of yours? You always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom. May Yahweh, your God, be praised. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel. He has made you a king to carry out justice and righteousness. And it says that she, that she gave the king four and a half tons of gold and lots of spices and precious tunes. It says, never again did, he, did such a quantity of spices arrive as, those, as the queen, queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So here we see this, you know, this, this, this country of Israel, sure, not in the way that God had originally designed it, but really at the zenith of, of, its, of, its, uh, of its time, where people are just amazed at what they were seeing. But we know the story of how they continued to walk away and were taken into captivity, lots of, lots of destruction, and just lots of ugliness. And this covenant did not work. And then jumping ahead hundreds of years, we see Jesus breaking on the scene, uh, teaching the kingdom, the kingdom of God teaching and preaching it and living it out and showing what it looks like to be children of God. And then, and then finally through his, through his enthronement on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, we see him inaugurating a kingdom of God on earth that we get to be part of and participate in as his followers today. And I, and I know that I'm in many ways, I'm preaching to the choir. I know there's many people here on this call who you have really, embrace the kingdom of God. And John D. Martin is one of those. Just this morning, I was listening to the talk that he gave at Kingdom Fellowship Weekend back in 2012. And we'd shared it earlier on, on this uh, channel. Um, just one of the most, it's such a powerful message that I felt like John was just anointed by the Holy Spirit uh, that day. And he was just, he was preaching his heart out. It was just touching to listen to that again this morning. Definitely recommend you to go there and listen to it if you haven't. But Jesus came preaching 
the kingdom of God. And we just see that all through the Gospels. And then beginning in Acts 1, before his ascension, what does it say there? It says that he was teaching his disciples and, and his, his followers things that pertain to the kingdom of God. And then through the Acts, we see the apostles doing this again and again. Uh, in Acts 19, uh, we see Paul going into the synagogue for three months, but boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Remember, we're, we're trying to figure out, like, what is the answer for today? What is the answer? And so we're looking at Scripture to figure out from Scripture, what is the answer for today? And then you go into the end of Acts. There, um, Acts chapter, well, anyhow, um, chapter 20-something. Uh, and, and here is Paul preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern Jesus Christ with all boldness, with all confidence. So we, we see this kingdom of God being taught over and over again today. But the question for us is, how, what does that look like? Is it just some kind of virtual reality that we kind of dream about or fantasize about? Is it some kind of nebulous pie in the sky that we really can hardly wrap our minds around? You know, is it just monks in monasteries philosophizing, dreaming about this, this heaven where there's a king um, and where all things are right. And I want to tell you that that is no, that is not the way it is. That this kingdom of earth, that we can bring it to earth and that it happens through local communities, kingdom communities of faithful practice. And we see that, we see that here uh, in scripture over and over again. And I'm just going to read some verses to you out of Acts 2, very, very familiar verses to us, but I just want to read it to help us think about what does it look like for the heaven, for the kingdom of God to be actualized here on earth. That's in Acts 2, and it's toward the end here of Acts 2 when, there's, when Peter had just got done preaching this powerful message, and he's calling people to come follow Jesus and there was 3,000 3, people that were added that day. And it says this, Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as everyone had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and humble attitude, praising God and had everything and having favor with all people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were saved. And we can look in Acts 4 and on through the, on through the book of Acts and then look at the, te- at the epistles and the teachings of that just over and over again that Paul is calling, the apostles are calling us into, into this one nothering, this community of believers. So what is the answer for today? And I want to Suggest. I want to tell you that it is the answer for today is cultivating kingdom communities of faithful practice. That is the answer. There is nothing else that is the answer. We need to again hone our our passions, our talents, our energies, hone everything that we have had in us, steward it to see these this actualized uh, around us to see our churches, to see our communities flourish, to see them become a proclamation of the kingdom of God on earth. 
And we have such an opportunity with that. John D. Martin says in that message there um, um, at Kingdom Fellowship Weekend, he says, Jesus wants a society of redeemed people to show the world what the whole world could look like if everybody would obey the king. And we all know that teamwork is way more than one person. It said that that when, when a team is working together, when a group of people are working together, it creates synergy. And the, the total of that is way more than if you would take a person here in one area and a person here in another area working on the same thing. The total of these people working together uh, on a team is way more than the total of these people working together on the same thing. It's synergistic. And we know that that as we look at um, look at history, look at the early church and see what they've done. And I want to read to you from a book here called um, When Helping Hurts. And, and this brother here is, is talking about the early church and what they did. And we read about it, the apostolic church here in, in the New Testament, and we see great things they've done. But the early church then went on to, to do the same thing uh, in the same ways. They followed that same pattern. And I just want to read that read to you what they did as a way for us to begin to try to understand what is our work, what is our job today. Cities in the Roman Empire were characterized by poor sanitation, contaminated water, high population densities, open sewers, filthy streets, unbelievable stench, rampant crime, collapsing buildings, and frequent illnesses and plagues. Life expectancy at birth was less than 30 years and probably substantially less. The only way for cities to avoid complex depopulation from morality was for there to be a constant influx of immigrants, a very fluid situation that contributed to urban chaos, deviant behavior, and social instability. Listen now. Rather than fleeing these urban cesspools, the early church found its niche there. Stark, a a historian, explains that the Christian concept of self-sacrificial love of others emanating from God's love for them was a revolutionary concept to the pagan mind, which viewed the extension of mercy as an emotional act to be avoided by rational people. So the pagan mind said, hey, um, that Ro- the Roman pagan mind said, um, mercy is an emotional act, and that's not rational. We don't, we don't get involved in, in mercy. Hence, paganism provided no, ethic, no ethical foundation to justify caring for the sick and the destitute, the, the destitute who were being trampled by the teeming urban masses. In contrast, Stark notices this. Stark notices, notes, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violence and ethnic strife. Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics 
fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. We thought, end of quote, uh, we thought our world was bad, but we could not imagine what it was like in those times. And did what did the Christians do? Did they create all kinds of nonprofits and institutions and built big buildings? What did they do? Well, we see the answer right here. They just did what their, the footsteps in one, of the ones they were following in, like as in, the, as in the apostolic church, they served people out of that sacrificial love. They followed the steps of their king, of King Jesus. Later, um, this emperor Julian wrote this in the fourth century. <clears throat> he said this, atheists, which actually, when he says, when, when this emperor says atheists, he's referring to the Christians. And I, I found that really interesting as I studied this. Um, you know, the, the pagans, they had many gods and they had temples and idols and they worshiped these things. And along come these people that just totally askew that. They don't have a temple. They, they meet in a house. They don't have they don't have statutes and idols. And they say, we just worship one God. And he's so he's calling them atheists. The atheists, the Christians, have been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. So, wow, what a people just pouring out their lives, pouring out the life as a drink offering, as uh, on a sacrifice, as, as Paul talks about. Just, just doing what, what Jesus would want them to do by his power, they served. And we know that their influence was tremendous uh, in that time. And many, many people came to follow Christ just by their simple acts of service. And so we, we love talking about this. You know, we love talking about going from house to house, um, that, that idea of, of, of community. We love it. But the reality is, is that it's hard. It is self-sacrificing. And so we quickly want to buy into, once the way gets hard, we want to buy into other ways of changing the world. And that's my burden for this message that so many times we allow the narratives, we allow what the general Christian, Christian theme is, we allow that to become our way and we, 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 we lose. We walk away from the pattern that Jesus and the early church has, has set for us. You know, recently we just came through elections here in, in the United States and many of us were astounded at what we saw, not only in the Christian church, but also right here uh, among our own people. It, when, when we go into hard times like this or times of testing, our allegiance, the allegiances of our hearts, the, the idols in our hearts manifest themselves. And we saw that happening all around us. I saw it in my own heart, that struggle to, to buy into a certain narrative or believe a certain thing. And then, of course, right on top of that, we have COVID-19 and all those restrictions. And that just gets really personal. It affects us. And it, it, it has a way of, of, of really 
destabilizing us. And, and we haven't related the best. We, you know, we, we, as, as Anabaptists, we've kind of lived our little perfect lives all alone without being, being um, hindered. And then all of a sudden, once we, once those restrictions hit us from the government, we want to go another route. We want to say, no way, that that's not for us. We're not going to obey that. And a lot of ugliness comes from that. I just thought of um, this morning as I, as I was thinking about this, I got a phone call earlier this year from a coffee shop, a, a brother who he's a, he's a Protestant Christian about an hour from us. And, and he said, Hey, actually he sent me a text. He goes, Hey brother, when you have a chance, I want to talk with you. Um, I have Mennonites coming into my, into my, um, into my coffee shop and they refuse to wear masks. And I said, and I want to comply with what the government is asking of me. But when I talk with these Mennonites, they get upset at me. He said, I'm, I'm trying to understand why, why that is and how I can relate to them in a way that would help them to comply. And so we ended up talking for a while about that. And that was so sad for me because, you know, we should really not, not be allowing all the different narratives, all the different rhetoric that's happening to influence us when it comes to actually obedience. Now, we can all have our own opinion. I'm not saying that. But at the end of the day, we still have to obey and do our best in respect of what the government is asking us. And think about our testimony to others. Um, in, in Colossians 2, verse 8, Paul says this, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking, and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. And so there's much, many things that come at us, um, whether it be from politics, um, whether it be from, from um, just ways of, of social engagement or the church, they come at us and they have a way of affecting us. And so I believe that if there ever was a time for a clarion call to a clear two kingdom framework and understanding it is today, brothers and sisters, we need to clearly understand what our role is in the world as two kingdom Christians and how do we change the world. Um, the Proverbs writer said, where there is no vision, the people perish. And there's a quote that I love that goes like this. A vision without a task is but a dream. A task without a vision is but drudgery. A vision and a task is the hope of the world. And so today, more than ever, we need a clear vision of where we're heading, what our destination is. And then we also need the task or the mission. What is, how do we get there? What is a vehicle to get us to that vision? And so, and God has given that to us through his son, Jesus, his most intimate revelation, through his, his kingdom here on earth. And, and then the task, all the work that goes into that, we see through the teaching of the apostles and the example of the early church. We have it. We have all the tools that we need, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and through each other and through the written word. We have what we need. We know what our task is. We just need to be like the early Christians and enter into that self-sacrificial service. So as we think about kind of some of the different narratives that are coming at us, I want to lay out three paradigms three general paradigms that I believe, um, or maybe, first of all, looking at two, maybe two um, imposter paradigms. And then the third paradigm is what I believe 
God is calling us to as, as kingdom Christians. So, and this is within the Christian world. So number one paradigm of how as the Christian world, or maybe the American Christians relate to the world is, is, is like this. And this is kind of my definition. Um, conservative evangelical churches method. So as we're thinking about changing the world, how does the conservative evangelical church do that? And this is my, my, my definition. Again, it's really a broad brushstroke, um, but I'm just trying to help us create a framework to which can help us then get the right, the right paradigm. So the, the conservative evangelical church says this, through preaching the truth from a pulpit on a Sunday morning, convincing people of it intellectually, uh, often it's very apologetic or confrontational in nature, and through the use of national politics, God would change the world. Okay, and so here their emphasis is on, uh, you know, a Sunday, maybe more, a Sunday, a Sunday religion or a Sunday morning uh, meeting in, in four walls. Um, maybe their, their emphasis is on, is on powerful preaching or having somebody who's really trained and skilled in preaching and, you know, a huge audience sitting, listening, spectators. And their emphasis, obviously, too, is on Gentile role, not serving up as Jesus did. But really, at the end of the day, bringing in uh, a Christian America or using politics that bring change down from the top. So again, broad brushwork, but a lot of your conservative evangelicals look at, that's the, how they look at changing the world. And then the other side of this is the progressive evangelical church. And, and their method goes somewhat, somewhat like this, maybe. Through bringing awareness of social injustice and through the use of national politics, God would change the world. And so here their emphasis, again, is on, is on um, the demonstration, possibly, or protests, awareness initiatives, uh, social action, uh, Gentile role. Again, top down at the end of the day. And it's really spectators. They're, they're looking to see somebody else that maybe has more power to change them. So Gentile role. And a lot of the, these, these above, above two things can be called maybe um, grandstanding. So it's, you think of a grandstand, you have a team out there and you have thousands and thousands of people right, right. Just a mile from us. We have the second largest college or the second largest stadium actually uh, in the United States, I believe 110,000 people can cram in that stadium. Of course that was pre COVID and they cheer on. What is it? Uh, two football teams. I don't know, maybe 30, 40 people. They cheer those on grandstanding there for one team, uh, one team, and they're yelling. And of course they have all kinds of opinions how that should happen, but basically they're, they're relying on their team to, to win. And so uh, that's how a lot of these churches at the end of the day relate. They believe that um, they, they, they're, they're spectators. They abdicate their responsibility to somebody else. Um, you know, and it, and it calls for lots of, you know, political signs this time of the year. Um, our street here was lined with uh, with political signs, it was the occasional Trump, but a lot of Biden, uh, and of course all the other Black Lives Matter, tons of signs, and our lesbian Quaker neighbors were the ones who had the most, tons of them, grandstanding, cheering from the sidelines. Um, I, I'll confess that we had one, one, one sign, and it was one that my son Trayden made that said, um, Jesus is our king, and on a wood sign, he burnt it, and we, we propped it out here on the, beside the tree, um, you know, we were, we were grinning, but, um, it's maybe, so maybe we were grandstanding a little bit too, 
Um, so maybe you can um, reprove me for, for getting involved in, in that. And then, okay, looking at the third paradigm, so look at two, the, the left and the right, and, and we're influenced by that greatly, way more than we want to, uh, maybe, maybe than we realize. The third paradigm is, is, um, is, is on kingdom Christianity. So kingdom-focused church's method, what does that look like? Or maybe the early church and the pilgrim church through the ages. So the, again, this is somewhat a vision statement. There's no way that I believe that I've entered into this. As I look at scripture, look at the early church, this is maybe how you would, you could put it. Um, through cultivating communities of faithful practice under the role of King Jesus, engaging and serving people through personal relationship and one-on-one interaction, calling them to come and participate in the living body of disciples, and thereby being a proclamation of the kingdom of God on earth, God would change the world. And here the emphasis is way more nuanced, possibly. Um, the emphasis is on, is, is on witness, is on living, it's on proclamation of word, it's on action, it's on displaying, it's on embracing, it's on community, and it's on participation. Not spectatorship, but participating, every person participating in this work. So that's a little vision statement that, that I wrote up. And some of these thoughts aren't my own. Uh, I tend to be somebody who he pulls stuff in from a lot of other people. Um, but it's a vision that, that I want to have in my heart and for our church. And hopefully many other churches I know have this vision and, and, and are doing that in beautiful ways. So how do we make practical this vision this work of, of cultivating kingdom communities of faithful practice. How do, what does that look like? What are some practical ways? And I have five practical ways that we can do that. Um, but there's, we're, not actually, we're actually not going to get to those today because I have, we're at 640 already. But I also, in my last time I preached this message, I thought I need to have some ways that we don't want to do this. We need to look at some negative ways because sometimes when you juxtapose a positive and a negative, it helps us, it clarifies what it should be that we're shooting for. Now at, at Sower's Harvest, our cafe, we, we talk about customer service at our team meetings um, quarterly. And, and often, sometimes we talk about, you know, ways we've experienced some really bad service. Like, wow, when I was there, at this cafe or whatever restaurant this happened and it made me feel like this. And, you know, boy, people love talking about the negative. And that's, that's just a reality that we all, that we, that as human, as humans, we love talking about the negative. And so um, this morning, I want to be careful on how much I focus on the negative, but back, you know, back to how we like to talk about that. Um, it's said that, you know, mon- a, a regular service at a, at a place, this mundane service, nobody talks about that. Bad service, you'll tell 10 people. And really good service, you'll tell maybe two or three people. All right, so we, we do like to focus on the negative. Um, so bear with me. We're going to look at five negative things um, that we need to reject. Or since we're thinking about cultivating or maybe using some farmer language, that we need to um, that we need to till up or plow down or put on Roundup or something. 
Um, we just need to kill it. We need to reject it. So we're going to look at these five negative things. Then I'm going to open it up for, for um, questions and thoughts and input and pushback um, from you all. So we need to keep moving here. I'm going to try to do this uh, in, in 10 minutes for or eight minutes for sure. So number one I have is we need to reject. We need to plow under. We need to destroy isola isolationism. For way too long, long lanes and rustic houses have captured our imagination. We have been, we've become sadly the people of the country and we have failed to really prioritize what I believe we see Jesus prioritizing and we see the early church prioritizing and that is people. We allowed the three P's, um, the three P idols, I say, um, to, to hinder our, the kingdom's advance, to hinder us getting around people so we can serve people. And those three Ps are prosperity, as in like our offspring, um, properties, and our plants. Those three things. And on prosperity, I, I think about back to when my wife and I got married, we bought a house in the city of Altoona. And one brother came to us and said, wow, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to move into, into the city like that and, and raise a family? Um, interestingly, we had a, a church building in downtown, but the idea of actually somebody from that church living in downtown wasn't jiving very well. And uh, we had those who supported us, um, but there was, you know, some, some pushback from several. Um, why, why is that? Why, why does, does we, do we allow our, our posterity to hinder kingdom advance? And I think of a, a beautiful example of a, a family in Indonesia right now, two families and went to Indonesia to a new culture that I know, that I know personally with their families. And, and it's a huge sacrifice. So may we become like that, not allow our posterity, not allow our properties and not allow our plants. We love being people to dirt. And, and that's good. I think we need to import that into the urban cultures and still be people that care about plants but we, not, we cannot let that stop us from getting in and being involved with people. Um, Billy North said this. He's a brother who, who's, who came into the Anabaptists. He lives in Tennessee, I believe. He said this, when I read Anabaptist history and early church history as well, what I found is not a people hiding, hiding in the back of a holler, hoping that the world doesn't come and pollute them with their sins. I found people charging the gates of hell with the gospel to conquer a world and turn it upside down. And so may we become like that. May we plow under this, this so quick notion and, 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 and reality that we want to embrace of just isolating ourselves, pulling back, especially in times like this, and, and, and not being vulnerable to the world around us. All right, the second thing that we need to reject, and that is meism or the save me gospel, as Brother John D. puts it. Or we call it meology, where it's all about me. And we know that that is just really coming at us from so many places in, in the Christian world. Get saved, uh, and then kind of, you know, batten down the hatches and wait for heaven. We need to reject that, plow it under, put roundup on it. Sure, salvation is important. Uh, we need to prepare for the eternal, for, the, for eternal life for the future life. But really it's just an entrance into the kingdom of God where we get to work for our king and advance his cause in the earth. It's not about us. John Nugent uh, in this book right here, 
called The Endangered Gospel. Um, just got it a week ago and, and, and read it um, and was just incredibly challenged by it. He says this, the most dangerous religion is not Islam, nor is atheism. The most dangerous religion is a form of Christianity that uses the name of Jesus to keep people happy and healthy, but doesn't call them into a form of, into a form of fellowship that showcases God's kingdom before a watching world. And I could not agree more. This me-ism, this save me gospel is, is truly her- heresy. It is from the devil to hamper the advancement of the church and to really make people atheists. Uh, there's a, yeah, anyhow, I'll, I'll say that story for maybe later. Okay, let's move on. We've got to keep moving here. Um, the third one is we need to reject patriotism. Just, the other, just yesterday, I pulled down the road here up behind a vehicle, and on the back, his bumper sticker said, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. We need to see this love of country as idolatry. We need to, again, see our kingdom as a rival nation, totally. And when I say our kingdom, I'm talking our kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. It is a rival nation. It it runs totally perpendicular to the way the nations of this world operate. Yes, nations of this world, earthly governments and kingdoms are a preserving force. We We need to respect them and obey them as long as they're not counter obedience to God. So they're preserving for us, but our kingdom is redeeming. It brings redemption, reconciliation, and it operates from the bottom up um, as, as, as we see Jesus doing uh, and living his life. Totally opposite. I would love to play a Facebook video here that someone sent me uh, a week ago, and that was a bunch of Christians in Washington, D.C. on the mall singing this, this song called people of the Lord and they're all waving Trump flags. And is, there's this incredible like team spirit that's happening. It, it almost, it, it's really compelling to sit and listen to it. Like it's this huge group of people and they're just at the top of their lungs singing the people of the Lord song. And, and this song goes like this. There is one body. We have one Lord united in the spirit. We, we, we go forth. With his praises on her lips and a sword in her hands, we're marching on with power as we possess this land. We are the people of the Lord. We're a holy nation, a chosen generation called to show forth his praise. We are the people of the Lord. We're a holy nation, believers in Jesus, lifting our voices to the Lord. And if you can listen to that and say, wow. I'm, I'm really glad they're there. I'm kind, of, you know, I'm kind of glad these people are down there doing that because that's what the world needs. They need that song. Then, brother or sister, you are not part of the kingdom of God. That should cause us to shed tears. I was overwhelmed with emotion as I listened to that song again this, this, this morning. Why can we as kingdom Christians be united in that way, proclaiming the kingdom of God on earth? Why have we given in to an imposter? Why have we as Anabaptists have walked away from our faith tradition, from so many beautiful examples that, that, that our forefathers have given to us? And of course, the early church and finally Jesus, we've walked away from it. We've, 
we bought into an imposter, a wrong narrative, a narrative that is run till the counter to God. It should cause us to cry when we see people desecrating God's name in that way. Um, I want to read to you uh, out of this book, John Nugent again, um, a couple a couple paragraphs here. And this brother, uh, even though he's a he he won't consider the Anabaptist but he has a clear, crisp understanding of the kingdom of God. And he, say, and he says this, Christians who choose, oh, and maybe, I'll, maybe I'll shorten up here a little bit. Um, since the mission of God's people entails, entails forming communities that embody Jesus' alternative, all-encompassing politics, then focusing on our mission, this mission of, of God, of, of this kingdom, is not lazy, unloving, irresponsible, or ungrateful. Rather, it is rightly ordered action, love, responsibility, and gratitude. Since it is God's strategy for blessing all nations, it is the best way to, to preserve whatever is good and worth dying for in the world. Those who reject God's strategy or merge it with the world strategies by yet are, are yet making another pointless run at ruling the nations are making another pointless run at ruling like the nations are the ones who are acting irresponsibly powerful words and we need to take that back again our brother from our church said this if we're taking sides in earthly politics we are violating kingdom politics. And finally, I have two more here yet of things that we need to plow under, that we need to reject. And this one is fundamentalism and its children. And, and its children, which and one of those is dispensationalism. Um, just recently, I had a, a, a brother, not a brother, uh, he's actually an atheist. He's a friend of mine from, from, that comes into our cafe and every once a week, got to know him really well. And he said, hey, he said, I have a podcast and you listen to, and it's, it's on fundamentalism and how he said Christians didn't used to be involved in politics like they are today. But then along came fundamentalism. And because of that, they get so involved in politics. And this, this gentleman, his name is Darren, is, is somebody who's, who's become an atheist really because of the Christian right and how he sees such inconsistencies in them. He said, if you really believe Jesus in his way, you won't be out there trying to make me follow Jesus by some law. Said Jesus came to change the heart, and 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 once he realized that that we are we do not get involved in politics that we don't vote, once he understood that well, he couldn't believe it, but once he understood that, he was willing to engage and listen because he realizes that I will not try to change him through some kind of subversive, top-down law, but I'll engage with him directly around around things of, of principle, et cetera. And it's up to him to choose. Um, anyhow, and so we need to reject fundamentalism. John Nelson Darby started that um, through his teachings of the enlightenment or dispensationalism, which really is a biblical hermeneutic that affects how you look at the, all the Bible and affects how you look at all of God's work in the world. Um, it, it, you know, his teaching ended up in the religious right, the moral majority. Um, the list just goes on and on, you know, exciting books written by Tim LaHaye and, and, and how 
you know, somehow America is this Christian nation that needs to get behind the nation of Israel. And if that, if we don't bless Israel, then we we're, we're, we're cursed. Um, and it's resulted in tons of conservative Christians getting involved in politics and voting for Trump and other Republican presidents. And even to this day, we've just seen this landslide as we've seen this past election of Anabaptist people buying into these beliefs. And then finally, the result of that is this congregation of people in the mall at Washington singing at the top of their lungs um, this, that song that talked about the people of the Lord. It is, it is absolute heresy and is calling us away from the kingdom of God. When I, when I had my um, kingdom epiphany, um, Brother Leo was part of that, teaching me how to, to understand the Bible through the kingdom lens, the kingdom focus lens. All of a sudden, all that cognitive dissonance that I had growing up you know, in a church that preached dispensationalism, and, and somehow there was an insinuation that the real action actually happens in the political arena, but yet we don't get involved in politics. It just caused this cognitive dissonance. Once I understood the kingdom, it, I just all of a sudden the lights went on. And I, I realized how we're going to change the world. And that's through the advancement of God's kingdom. And that to, runs totally separately from the earthly kingdoms. And there's no hope over here. So fi- my final one um, is we need to reject racism. And I know that most of us here, you know, we, we wouldn't say we have racism in our hearts or we wouldn't even feel guilty about this because we feel that we do love all people. We realize that God does love every ethnicity, but I think one of the biggest challenges for us as a people is going beyond that and actually embracing people's culture, embracing them, them as, as who they are, as how, how they've been brought up and how they think and their different ways of responses, et cetera, et cetera. For me, that's one of the hardest things um, in my interactions with different ethnicities and even within our congregation and even within working at, at our cafe with people from different backgrounds. We just do things differently and it, it's hard. To, to respect, to actually um, uh, allow them to be who they are. And so we need to um, really think, I think, think deeply about this. How do we allow, how do we nurture really a multi-ethnic um, life? How do we nurture that in ourselves and in our children? Um, there's always these, these little rhymes and, and little platitudes that, that come out of us that at the end of the day really push down other ethnicities. We need to reject those. We need to remove those, say those are not allowed among us. Um, Brother Finney has a good message uh, on Anabaptist perspectives on, on the, the fact of the Christian church undoing Antioch. And he's calling us back to emulate Antioch again with the, the place where they were called Christians first. So that's my five things that we need to reject. And Lord willing, next week, um, I hope to talk about the five things that we need to cultivate uh, in our communities. So I'll stop now. Um, Does anybody have any pushback, questions, whatever, please share them. Brian, just to um, review clarification, a couple things. Mm -hmm. So who was the crowd in Washington, D.C. that was singing People of the Lord? That was a crowd of Christians of some sort. Um, you know, I know there was, you know, it was also other Anabaptists who went down there to join into these prayer rallies, like by Franklin Graham and those kind of people. It's actually some videos floating around too of some conservative Anabaptist people 
down there getting up on the stage and praying and talking about, you know, and it's really, a, of course, a support of Trump and how that's going to make, you know, America Christian again. And so, yeah, so it's this whole group of people, um, conservative Christians, waving flags and singing that song at the top of the lungs. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Brian, do you have a link to share on that? I can drop it on here. It's on Facebook. I would like to see it. Yeah, anyone can listen to it. It's a link to Facebook video. If you don't have Facebook, you can still listen to it. And then another question. You had a quote about a vision and a task. Yes. Uh, vision without a task is yes. what, a dream. A task without a vision is drudgery. Right. A task and a vision is what? The hope of the world. The hope of the world. Thanks. Yeah. And I would say that was my experience growing up. You know, under dispensationalism and fundamentalism is this, it was this task to be a conservative Christian, to be separated, to be a Mennonite, but it was drudgery because I didn't know why. But then as Brother Leo taught the kingdom, it's just like this light bulb went on. Like, yes, many of those things were right, but it was taught in the context. It wasn't, the vision wasn't there. When you have that vision of the kingdom of God on earth and our job is to advance that kingdom, it just, it brings you hope in your heart. Um, And I believe it is the hope of the world. Right. Yes, brother. Can you hear? Can you all hear me? I can hear you well. Okay. Uh, I was your your story about the uh, mask wearing into coffee shop intrigued yeah. me. Oh no! Can we can we stop? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had an interesting experience here locally. Uh, I do business with a young man by the name of Joey Joey Hauser, uh-huh. and uh, a very sincere. Uh, man, he would he would attend a, a method a local small a local Methodist church, but mm-hmm. of course it has been shut down for since COVID. So him and his wife and their three children haven't been <coughs> attending church recently. Mm-hmm. And of course, back on October the twelfth, I came down with COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. and it just so happened that very day that I began to sense that I had symptoms. He had asked me whether. I would ride with him up to Kane, uh, Pennsylvania to look at a truck he wanted to buy. Okay. <laughs> so unknowingly, I, I didn't know, realize at that point that I had COVID-19. We spent all day in a pickup or wow. a vehicle. We probably spent seven, eight hours together in that same vehicle, unmasked, riding together, discussing many different things. And at the end of the day, I get sick. This my friend Joey is a very paranoid type fellow. He has a lot of anxieties. So when I got sick that night, I knew I had to call and tell him this. And the next day I had to call and tell him, I said, Joey, I hate to tell you this, but I'm sick. Well, his, his world neither collapsed <laughs> because he's deathly scared of COVID-19. And anyway, we kept close contact and he would he said to me later, he said, you know, he said, I haven't ridden with anybody other than you since, since uh, end of March. <laughs> and he said, you know, he said, you were the last person that I thought would be contagious. <laughs> I said, well, you got to understand. He said, I, I just never dreamed that you would be possibly my first contact for, or 
uh, uh, for COVID-19, I said, well, Joey, I had to have an answer, you know. I said, Joey, you, you don't understand something. I said, actually, I said, the Mennonites and the Amish are the most contagious people there are. I said, you know why? I said, because they're not going to obey the king's commandment. And I said, they're going to gather them together to worship regardless of what the king says. And um, I, I just said that right off the top of my head because I, I didn't know how else to answer his question. And uh, that really subdued him. Uh, but And I don't know if I answered him well or bad, but that's how I answered him. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, sort of, I sort of said it in a, in a joking atmosphere, but I thought about it many times since. Um. Because I, I, I'm, I do wear a mask in, in, in public. If I come into your cafe, I'm going to be wearing a mask. So I don't want you to think that I'm not. Yep. On the other hand, I don't know quite how to think about this because when I said what I said, I realized there's some tr- there is some truth to what I said. And, and so I don't know how anybody else – I'd like to hear what other people think about this. Um, is sure. in fact, are we going to continue to gather together regardless of the king's commandment? Mm-hmm. Or are we going to uh, resort to Zoom? Uh, not, that, not that there's any wrong thing wrong with the Zoom, not at all, but are we going to end up res- res- uh, resorting to Zoom worship services? Yep. Or are we going to continue to get together? Yep. What do you think? I, I appreciate the question. Um, so, brother, I am totally about getting together. We have to assemble, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And we know that that we're we're there. I believe that we're we're heading. You know, of course, every generation believe that, but we definitely are receiving pressures like never before. However, we still need to respect the people around us. We so we, we, we need to respect the governor, um, the, our government. We need to respect them. And for example, here in State College, people are incredibly fearful of, of this virus. And, and so we had to contextualize ourselves. How do people feel around it? Uh, we're having some international students to our place on Thursday for supper for, for Thanksgiving. And I know that some of these folks will be wearing a mask in, in my house. I, I had one brother, not brother, one gentleman here one time in, in, recent, in the past month, and he wore a mask that evening in my house. And so they're fearful. It, it's, it's palpable. They really, they really are fearful of it. And so we need to decide what mountains we want to die on. And I just don't think the mountain of not wearing a mask is, is a mountain worth dying on. We can still get together um, and, and we can still, you know, but it depends on, you know, we have to use wisdom and have liberty for each other for sure and, and, and show love for each other. Um, but whenever we go into other places of business, that's what has really been so frustrating to me is the only people I have coming into our cafe without a mask are Mennonites. And within an hour, I'm getting bad reviews online of people saying this place, they allow people without masks. And when I talk with the Mennonites about putting their masks on, they, they, they get upset at me. Um, and, and it's happened. It really has happened. Um, so we need to respect other people. And, and their fears and, and somehow try to, um, yeah, be wise in how we relate to outsiders for sure. 
in this process. I appreciate what you shared. I, I agree. I think I agree with every part of it. But yeah, maybe one other person can share here, but we should be wrapping up before too long. Glenn, I'll turn it back over to you. You can be the moderator here and say, yay, what's up? Leo, did, jo did Joey get sick? No, he did not. That's the interesting part. We spent eight hours together, unmasked, riding in a vehicle, breathing the same air, and he, he nearly went into panic mode. It, it, he's, it's a funny story. And, and the next morning, on Tuesday morning, I called and told him. At that point, I, hadn't, I didn't have a test. And uh, later that day on Tuesday, which was the 13th, I went and got a, paid for a 15-minute test because the, where I work, I, I work around a lot of people, and they wanted me to know. So I went and got a test, and he's, like, texting me and calling me. Let me know. Let me know. As soon as you get your test, I need to know. I need to know. So as soon as I had my test, it come back positive. And his world nearly melted down, and he spent the rest of his week. Oh, to make the story even more interesting, right before we left on the 12th to spend eight hours together, when I got to his house to pick him up, he was um, – he said, come in my house, come in my house. He said, I've got to show you something. He said, we just pulled a pick out of my little boy's ear. So I kind of reluctantly went in his house. But again, keep in mind, I didn't know I was sick yet. I was starting to feel achy, but I didn't know why. So I was in his house, and there's his mom, and there's his wife, and there's his two girls, and a little boy. They just pulled a tick out of his ear. And this was a big deal at this house because he's also definitely uh, terribly afraid of Lyme's disease. So we discussed it for 15, 20 minutes, and then we got on our road and went. So anyway, that night I get sick. The next day I call him, and his, when he discovers I'm positive, he's just absolutely sure that he's going to get sick, 100%. He said, there's no way that I'm not going to get sick. So he paced his basement floor the rest of the week. I don't even think he slept with his wife. And... Every day, I mean, I was getting multiple texts a day. How are you doing? Can you breathe? Can you, are, are you doing all right? And, and uh, so he, he wants to go get a test to find out whether he got COVID-19. I said, well, Joey, hold up a minute. I said, you're going to have to wait at least three to five days from exposure to even get some kind of an accurate test. So he immediately sets up a test for Friday afternoon. Now, he was exposed to me on Monday. So he didn't do a thing that week. He, week. he was just paralyzed. He was just, I said, what are you doing, Joe? He said, well, he said, I'm not going to do anything this week because I don't want to run myself down in case I get sick the next week. I said, well, you might want to go to work because if you do get sick next week, you'll be down two weeks. So anyway, Friday comes, he goes gets his test and he gets two. He gets a 15 minute test and he gets a long culture test. It both come back negative. But anyway, um, <laughs> it was a funny story. And he still, this is, this is uh, almost six weeks later, and he still hasn't got sick. <laughs> well, that brings up another point. Uh, how do we communicate that we are not paranoid? We are not hysterical right. about this. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, I, I also, if, if a store requires a mask, I wear a mask or a restaurant. I mean, I want to be obedient. But uh, it, it, let's talk about politics just a little bit. I don't think that uh, the, the left needed to see 
that this nation is a nation of sheep, that if they say boo, we all cower. Uh, I think that was the wrong message to send to to the, the left uh, because they do want power. They do want to dominate. And to see a nation that can be easily dominated, I think, was the wrong picture. Now, my question is, how do Christians relate to this? How do we communicate something different without being uh, rebellious? John, um, just a question there. Are you saying that the right doesn't want to dominate and doesn't want to power and doesn't want to get people to do things? <laughs> now we're going to get into a political discussion. But they don't burn down buildings when they don't get their way. They don't, they don't use power in the same way. And, and, and now this gets us back to the kingdom. The big difference between the kingdom and uh, the, the socialists and by the way, that socialist message resonates with everybody because Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. There's eternity in every heart. When you talk about kingdom ideals, everybody knows down deep in their heart, it should be like Karl Marx said, from each according to his means and to each according to his needs. He got That, that comes straight from the teachings of Jesus. Marxism is a Christian heresy. Uh, but the, the difference is they impose it. Uh, Brandt was talking about this. That it's an imposed equality, which ends up not being equality. You end up with a few elites who aren't equal, who are imposing an equality on everybody else, and it turns into a huge disaster. A uh, hundred million people died in Russia and China under that system. The difference is Christianity brings it into the heart of people to do it out of their own love and Man. voluntarily. It's a vo it's voluntary. Nothing is imposed on anybody. Uh, and that's what's so beautiful about the kingdom of God. It answers that same ideal, but it doesn't impose it on anybody. Uh, and, and, and then it works the way it should. And the early Christians for years, I, I wondered how in the world did they change their world in a way that we can't seem to change? And, and Brian was right on it. They outserved. They, they just literally outserved everybody else. If there was a plague in the city like COVID and everybody ran and grabbed, and, and got out of the city, they stayed. They risked their lives. Some of them died to serve. And uh, somehow we have to find a way to do that in our generation. And perhaps we're coming into an era where we will have more opportunities to demonstrate that than ever before. Yes. Mm -hmm. But my question remains, how do we relate to the, the imposition of, of things like masks and don't communicate the same hysteria, the same obsequiousness, uh, cowering under law and all of that. How do we communicate the right message? I like how you put it there about out serving. Let's um, die on the altar of service instead of non-mask wearing. Well, what I see happening, I don't, I, this is not going to answer your question, John, but what I think is going to happen is, is that the, the kingdom of God is going to actually experience this thing of herd immunity first. Because they will get together, they will serve. And so long before the world experiences herd immunity or whatever, we're already going to have it. 
and a few people will die in the process. I mean, that, that is just the reality. Yes, and that's, uh, and that's what we need to express no fear about, even though uh, I actually don't think the toll is going to be that high. Amen. Okay, so it is um, almost a quarter after seven here. I uh, want to thank everybody for joining us this morning. I am really looking forward to part two. I thoroughly enjoyed this part. Gives a lot to, to think about, but um, maybe we can just uh, close here with a word of prayer. Uh, Brother Brian, would you want to lead us in a closing prayer? Could I ask Brother Jundee to? Thank you. Brother Jundee, could you close us in prayer, please? Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful opportunity to proclaim your kingdom with the confidence that we are addressing something basic in every heart and that will resonate to that message. Oh, God, forgive us for giving uh, a message that did not connect with that. Uh, and I just pray, help us to learn how in this very crucial time in our history and our nation to communicate your kingdom and not only to communicate it, but to demonstrate it so people who hear the message are seeing the reality at the same time. And so, Lord, help us in this very challenging era to know how to relate to our government, to know how to relate to the people in need, to know how to relate to each other, to know how to give the right message at the right time uh, in this very crucial period. And, oh, God, I do pray that you will open hearts to this kingdom message and that uh, this will be, uh, as Winston Churchill said, uh, about his nation during a crucial time, that this was Christianity's finest hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Again, we welcome you all back uh, next week. Uh, Brother Bryant will be sharing again next week on part two. Uh, this morning we heard the five things to uh, reject, and so we're looking forward to hearing about the five things to be cultivating in our kingdom communities. Lord bless your day, and uh, look forward to seeing you next week. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.